I am Pastor Jay. It is my privilege to invite you to open God's Word or turn on your tablet or your phone to 1 Corinthians 13. Right before we moved here, almost eight years ago, our son was doing an internship at Moody Church in Chicago. He was teaching a class there as a youngster. He was finishing up Moody Bible Institute, doing an internship there at Moody Church. And we went to the class one day, and he introduced us to this couple. And uh, I forgot your dad's first name. Is it Bob? And so he introduced us to this couple, and Mr. and Mrs. Erickson like, oh, yeah. They said, yeah, we have a son that's a pastor out in the north suburbs. His name's Don. He's in Cary Free Church. So before we ever met Don or Claudia, we met his folks at the Moody Bible Church, Moody Bible. And uh, so that was a great privilege to meet them. And uh, then to come out here and, and to meet Brother Don and Claudia. So thank you for being here today and ministering to us. We are in a series, Walking Chunk by Chunk. You may say, well, why do you, why do you preach that way? I grew up in a denomination that didn't do that. Uh, pastors spoke on all kinds of different subjects and topics. And um, the reason we do this, it goes back to our doctrine of Scripture, that we believe all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out, and is inerrant, infallible. And so that our goal, our job, is to then dissect it and go through it and see what God has said. If you look at Jesus' view of inspiration in the book of Matthew, he had a very high view of Scripture. He believed it was inspired down to the smallest letter and stroke of a letter. And so do we. So that is why we do this. This is a letter written somewhere around the mid-50s A.D. to a small church in southern Greece, in Corinth, by the great Apostle Paul. And I have not shown any photographs of this area, except for the first Sunday we started the series. So let me just back up a little bit. That's been several months ago. Just to give some context again where we're at in the world and in Corinth. So you see where this is at, down in the Peloponnese, way down in southern Greece. Uh, Corinth there, across from Athens. And the next photograph, uh, as you're driving in even today, you can read the sign there in English or Greek, Corinthos, still a modern city, and there's an ancient city there. Uh, the next picture will be kind of a, an aerial view of the whole, of ancient Corinth, which sits kind of in the middle of what modern Corinth is. The next seat, the next uh, photograph is what we call the uh, Bema. Bema was a, uh, a, a judicial platform in a secular arena, Paul talks about it and talks about it in the sense of uh, this is, he uses a word where believers someday will be judged and assessed, but this is down in the heart of the ancient uh, city there. Next photograph, this was our group, this is me teaching, uh, the, the beam was right over, over to my backside over there, and just gives you a, a beautiful view of what this topography is like. The next photograph will show you a little bit more. This is the temple of Apollo, what's left of it. And to get an idea of the size, if you go to the next photograph, the little tiny people there in front of it, Becky and I, give you an idea of just what, what's left of it. This thing was massive. This was an area of paganism and pagan worship and worship of demons. The next photograph is kind of of the Agora. This would be the uh, marketplace and some of the areas where people shopped. And then the next one is the theater. It's not been restored. If you go to... Israel today, you go to Caesarea or Bethshan, you'll see restored theaters. This one is completely unrestored, but this is the ancient theater there. So you get an idea of, 
of uh, a little bit of the topography and background and what it looked like. Paul spent at least 18 months in this area. And then after about a year and a half, he left as a church planter, as Paul did. Paul was a missionary church planter, first and foremost. He went over to what is modern-day Turkey, to Ephesus, to a large area. And then he began to hear that his pet project, his little babe, his church plant, was going over the cliff. It wasn't doing very well. It had devolved, <laughs> put it mildly, into infighting and to um, all sorts of sins and uh, problems. And so he began to write a series of letters. Two of them, inspired of the Holy Spirit, ended up in our New Testament. And we call those 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We have more words from Paul to this church, to this congregation, than any other church he wrote to in our Bible. Paul has 13 letters in our New Testament, but if you take these two combined, he wrote more words to this church than any other. So that's just a brief recap, a little bit of where we're at. That brings us to chapter 13 today, a very short chapter in this book, in this letter. It is a chapter that is often called the love chapter. It is sometimes read at weddings. It is sometimes preached on. I've never preached on this at a wedding, but it is sometimes preached on at weddings. It is frequently misunderstood and misapplied. So we're going to our goal is to look at this today and understand you know, what is being said and what is not being said. Paul is showing us a couple things. I'm going to zero down to three things he's showing us in these 13 verses. One, something that the great uh, apologist Francis Schaeffer said that love is the mark of a true Christian. That's clearly the first section. And then secondly, we're going to look at love as a verb because that's what the, first, the second section shows us. And then thirdly, love is more important than spiritual gifts. So with that, let's dive in. I want to talk about the context here. Some of you know the context, some of you don't. Few chapters in the Bible have suffered more misinterpretation and misapplication than 1 Corinthians 13. It's not that it's not about love, it is, but dislodged from its original setting is part of a three-chapter section, I'll talk about that, separated and lifted out all by itself is very easy to become kind of a sappy love poem or a sentimental hymn. Instead, in case you did not know, 1 Corinthians 13 is a very robust rebuke. Doesn't mean that the subject is not about love, it is, but it's not just this elevated love poem or love hymn. It is a very strong rebuke by the Apostle Paul for a very specific reason. To see things in context, uh, let's, first of all, you've got to realize it's part of a three-chapter section. Now remember, chapters were added about 13th century, so we, Paul didn't write in chapters. He didn't write in King James English. He wrote in Greek, and this was a letter, so there wasn't sections to it. But what we call chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 really is one section dealing with spiritual gifts. Dealing with spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, if you go back for a second, which we were dealing with last week out into the tent, Talks about spiritual gifts, the reality of them and the distribution of them. The reality of them and the distribution of them. In fact, we learned there's three major chapters on spiritual gifts in the Bible that talk about their description, describe them, that it would be 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. That's where you're going to find the greatest list of what we would call spiritual gifts. We learned every true Christian at the moment of salvation is baptized in the Holy Spirit and given spiritual gifts, a couple of spiritual gifts, not all of them, but some. 
at least one, probably several, and they're given for a very specific reason. What are some of those gifts? Well, things like mercy and teaching and encouragement, preaching, uh, shepherding, administration, gifts of healing, hospitality. The purpose, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, is to equip believers to get up and serve, care for each other, and forward the mission of the church. That's why he gave them. And Paul compared the church to a human body at the end of chapter 12, and that every true Christian has a role to play. Every true Christian, anyone who has repented and trusted Christ as Savior. Therefore, the question is, we faced last week, if you know Jesus, if you claim to know Christ, are you serving? Where are you serving? And we said in fairly strong language last week, just to come and sit and to take and leave and never do anything in a church is not biblical Christianity. The Bible doesn't view that as biblical Christianity. That's chapter 12. Chapter 13, right in the middle of this extended section on spiritual gifts then, is about the more excellent way. This is the why behind spiritual gifts or the motivation behind them. In other words, when it comes to things like spiritual gifts, they are ripe, R-I-P-E, for abuse. You say, well, how so? Because you can neglect them. You can overemphasize them. You can become self-righteous about them. Or you, become, you can become very selfish with their use or non-use. There's all kinds of ways they can be misused. And we're being misused. And so Paul, right in the middle of his whole discussion between chapter 12 where he talks about gifts and what they are. In chapter 14, where he's going to talk about the abuse of some of them, specifically the gift of tongues. Right in the middle of all of this, he's going to talk about the motivation that should be behind all spiritual gifts. The visible ones, the more behind-the-scene ones. But nonetheless, he gives them a very strong rebuke because they were not doing well and they were abusing the spiritual gifts in this church. This was just one of many problems in this church. And so that gives you the context. That brings us to verse 31 of chapter 12. So if you go to chapter 13 and just back up one verse. Now that we have a little bit of the historical and biblical context, Paul writes, verse 31, chapter 12, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And generally, most think he means some of the more visible ones, but we don't know exactly what he meant by greater gifts, but clearly he stages the gifts, and he says, yet I want to show you the most excellent way. So whether we're talking about visible gifts, whatever the issue, Paul wants to make it very clear that through neglect, through self-righteousness, through abuse, they were not doing this very well. And that takes us right into chapter 13. So you have the chapter 12 deals with the what, chapter 13 begins to deal with the how. So here's the problem in a nutshell. In the church at Corinth, some were feeling bitter, probably inferior because they didn't have some of the more what we would call visible gifts. Some of the gifts, obviously, are more visible. They're more upfront kinds of gifts. Others were feeling superior and self-important because they had some of the more showy gifts. And so they were flaunting them and doing accordingly. And Paul is calling both groups on the carpet, both groups, for their foolishness their pride, and just their selfishness in how they were doing this. And that brings us to the first three verses of chapter 13. 
He says, if I speak in the tongues, then when you read the word tongues in the Greek, you can translate it tongue like we would use it today. What's your first tongue? We sometimes ask people when they speak multiple languages. Word can also be translated language. can go either way. If I speak in tongues of the languages of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul probably picked that one because that one clearly was a highly visible gift and that one was clearly being abused and overused in this church and overemphasized. If I, give, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge and I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I have nothing. If I, so he is, he's using some of the gifts here as an example. Or if I give all I possess to the poor... And even give my body over to hardship that I may boast and do not have love and gain nothing. Or hardship or even give, give my life up. So his point is, even if he gives away all his possessions, even if he becomes a martyr for the faith, which were there, there were a lot of in that time and still are today, it doesn't count for anything if he does not have love towards other believers. All goes back to the nature of who God is. We know that the shortest definition of who God is is in 1 John 4, 16, where John simply writes, God is love. God is love. But it was this very thing that this church lacked. This church had a lot of spiritual gifts. How do we know that? If you go back chapter 1 for a minute and look at verse 7, we are told this church had a, an abundance of spiritual gifts. Those are not the hallmark of maturity. We learned that last week. Spiritual fruit, the nine character qualities that Paul lists in Galatians, that is the barometer of spiritual maturity, if those are developing in your life or not. An abundance of spiritual gifts given at conversion are not necessarily a barometer of spiritual maturity. We know that because chapter 1, verse 7, he says this church had a lot of spiritual gifts, but it was a train wreck. Verse 7, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So this church had a lot of spiritual gifts. We also know they were doctrinally solid, unlike some churches in the New Testament that were written to. Chapter 11, verse 2, he praises them, actually. Here's one of the few things he praises them for, for their theological orthodoxy. So they had a lot of spiritual gifts. You get to chapter 11, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions I passed on to you. That's code for they were hanging on to the apostolic doctrine, the traditions that Paul had passed on. So apparently it was a lot easier to be theologically orthodox, which is very important. But it was easier to be orthodox or busy doing ministry than to be loving. Nothing much has changed today. In short, this new church was filled with both Christians and non-Christians. Every church has Christians and non-Christians in it. And they had completely forgotten what the master had taught about love. And this comes out, I think, most clearly in the passage Claudia read for us today. If you go back to the Gospel of John just for a minute, chapter 15 and chapter, even before that, chapter 13, you have probably Jesus' clearest words about love. Chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, and then chapter 15, verse 12. They had completely forgotten what Jesus said 
about love. Chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Gospel of John. That's why I had this section read out of chapter 15 today. But go back to chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Night before he died, with his men, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Yesterday at Rose Sutherland's memorial, we sang at the end, they'll know we're Christians by our love, that old song. If you go over to chapter 15, verse 12, my command is this. Got to love Jesus. He was always just very clear. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. So the essence of New Testament love is a lot easier to say than to do. Let's just be honest. It's true for me and true for all of us. But what's the essence of it? Self-sacrifice, giving, not receiving, and putting the needs of others first. That is the essence of New Testament biblical love. Classic example of this, of how distorted we can get when it comes to love, is a story told by Alan Redpath. Alan Redpath was a British evangelist who eventually became pastor at Moody Church for about a decade. He told the story of a young woman who came in to see her pastor, and, very common story, she said, I have a young man who's pursuing me. He says he loves me so much and I want to break up with him, but he says I, he loves me so much that he's going to kill himself if we break up. What do you advise? Dr. Redpath said, I advise you do nothing. He said this, that man doesn't love you. He loves himself. Such a threat isn't love. It is pure selfishness. Pure selfishness. That is the antithesis of biblical love. And yet, how often we get twisted around and thinking what love is and what it's not, and we get very uh, muddled in our thinking. So the first thing we see here, love is the mark of the true Christian. That's the charter of Jesus. Paul simply picks that up and amplifies it. This is not a solo chapter on its own. Chapter 13 is a rebuke to a church that was abusing and misusing spiritual gifts doesn't mean you can't lift it up and read it at a wedding. It can be very apropos for a wedding, but that's not the original context, although the principles are very powerful for a Christian marriage. That brings us secondly to love as a verb, verses 4 to 7. What's striking about the next few verses is that Paul actually describes love in very concrete terms. Now, if you have an English translation in front of you, and I assume most of you have an English translation in front of you in some form, we see a bunch of adjectives. Love is patient, love is kind. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad way to, to translate the Greek, but in the original Greek, if you know Greek, or if you've studied this at all or read a commentary, you will know these are not adjectives in the Greek. They're verbs. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, verb's an action word, and it's not an adjective. They, in other words, they, it, it describes how love behaves in the Greek. Instead of just saying love is patient, in the Greek, it would say something like, love is being patient. Uh, or instead of saying, love, you know, doesn't keep, a, uh, does, it doesn't boast, uh, love 
in a verb would say love stops boasting or love does not go on boasting. There's a, there's a difference between an adjective and a verb. It doesn't mean that adjectives can't communicate what's being said, but they don't communicate as well as if you translated them as verbs. So let's read the English. Love is patient. Love is kind. But again, the Greek would be love is being patient. Love is being kind. There is a deeper nuance there. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not Dis, um, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. So because these are verbs in Greek, they're not so much describing what love is, as how it behaves. That's, that's the point. Love acts patiently. Love acts kindly. It goes back to last week's message in 12, chapter 12. If you speak in tongues, if you have some of the visible gifts, if you can do miracles and healings, if you, if you have incredible spiritual gifts but are not being patient with others, if you're building up grievances towards others, if you're not being kind to your husband or your wife, then you gain nothing. He says you are nothing. Now, one of the most disobeyed, as I was looking at this this week, and pastors had to make all kinds of decisions exegetically and hermeneutically as you look at the text. Okay, what, what seems to be the main focus? What should get emphasized? There's only so much time. As I was looking at it this week, one of the, one of the things that jumped out at me is one of the most disobeyed of all these verbs is captured in verse 5. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. or It keeps no account of wrongs, depending on your translation. I looked at a number of English translations, the New International, the New American Standard, the New Living Translation, the Christian Standard Version. I mean, all four of those are good translations. And they all translate it pretty much the same and, and get it pretty accurately. Uh, the, unfortunately, the English Standard Version here kind of muddled it a bit. It said, it translates it, love is not irritable or resentful, which sort of gets it. But really, the, 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 the literal translation, it does not keep an account of wrongs. And as I was looking at it, I thought, one of, the, one of the biggest problems in my heart, one of the biggest problems in the evangelical church, is that very issue. People who keep accounts of wrong. So I'm looking at this even deeper. And the, the, the word translated does not keep account of wrongs is a Greek word, it's actually a verb, logizomai. Thinking, and I'm staring at that the morning thinking, I've seen that word before. I've seen logizomai somewhere before and all of a sudden it hit me. Paul uses that in Romans. I flip over to Romans and do a little work and then I look at some commentaries. He uses the word logizomai in Romans when he talks about a doctrine. You know what doctrine it is? Justification. When God does not count the sins against somebody when they repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't count those sins against them. That's the word Paul is using here in verse 5. He says that true love does not keep track of, does not account the wrongs like in a ledger uh, against somebody else. And that, so you get a feeling why understanding that these are verbs takes on a different significance than just looking at them as adjectives. And yet that's the very thing. It's 
honestly, the older you get, I think this is one of the sins that I think besets a lot of older believers more and more, is unforgiveness, keeping track of grievances and offenses. It's one of the most common sins in churches and that destroys churches, is believers who slowly, gradually build up grievances, keep track of offenses. And it slowly erodes them, poisons them, poisons their church. And some congregations never recover. It's, just, it's interesting as a pastor, you can see some churches that just, they can't get out of that pit. Because it eventually just becomes toxic. Every once in a while when I'm talking about bitterness, not keeping track of wrongs and grievances, I've listed what I call the six flags of bitterness. I want to review those just briefly here this morning because uh, once or so a year or every other year, it's helpful just to look at these because it is such a difficult sin to own, to see in our own life. It's one of the easiest to see in other people's lives. It's one of the hardest to see in our own lives. So here's, it's not six flags over Georgia. This is six flags of bitterness. Six flags, red flags of bitterness, and this is not necessarily to apply to anyone else, to you, but to take inventory and just perhaps help you see a little bit more if you might be succumbing to this sin. These are in no particular order, but these would be a direct violation of what Paul is talking about here, not keeping accounts of sin, of wrongs, of grievances against yourself. So what are some of these red flags that you might be bitter? Well, number one, Bitter people almost always deny they're bitter. I was talking to someone in another state recently who was very bitter, and I just casually said, could it be that you're bitter? And I got a very loud no on the telephone very fast. No! I said, okay, great, cross that one off the list. Here's, here's something else. Bitter people, especially as it becomes toxic and metastasizes, not only do they deny it, it's very interesting, often those closest to them deny it because they, they're walking on eggshells around them and they don't want to uh, uh, explode the bomb, so to say. And so not only does the person themselves deny it, often those right around them will also deny it and enable the whole mess. Secondly, bitter people often have long-standing anger, sometimes at very legitimate issues. They have been betrayed, they have been abused, they have been wounded, they've been lied about, they've, you know, the list can go on and on. So it doesn't mean their grievances aren't real, it just means they're still hanging on to them and they often have a long history of legitimate hurts. Third red flag of bitterness, bitter people often keep lists, actual lists real lists. I've had this on a number of occasions. Anybody here as a leader probably has. I remember a guy who came in one time, very skilled, capable, bright executive, came in to see me, wanted to talk, sat down, and wow, did he have a long list. We couldn't even begin to get through the list of all the things that were wrong in my preaching and wrong in my leadership and wrong in our church. And on and on the list went. A very wise Bishop once told me, Wes Johnson, who used to be the bishop of our district, 
And he used to attend this church. He said, Jay, he said, whenever you see somebody that comes into you and they're angry and they have a list, he said, you can pretty much ignore the list because the issues on the list aren't the issues. And I said, well, what's, what's the issue? He said, the issue is their heart. Anyone who has a list, that's an immediate sign that they're probably bitter. And if you take care of the issues on their list, all they're going to do is manufacture another list the next day because the issues aren't the issue. The issues are a bitter heart. Fourthly, bitter people often seek out others on a regular basis to share their concerns with, to which I would say be very careful taking up other people's offenses. You probably don't know the whole story. Fifthly, bitter people often have, <laughs> this is an interesting one, they often have ongoing conversations with people who aren't there. Now, by that, I don't mean that they're insane. But you all know what happens when you're angry and upset with somebody. What do you do? You have rehearsal conversations in the bedroom and closet with the person when they're not there. Right? Come on, you know the truth. We've all done this. If you're having conversations with someone that you're angry at, and they're not even there, and this is an ongoing thing, that's a pretty severe reminder, serious red flag. You probably got bitterness going on. And sixthly, bitter people often have a trail of strained relationships. So just, just drilling down into that one, because it is one of the most common ones that besets all of us, the sin of ongoing anger and bitterness and it can so easily destroy our life, our marriage, our immediate family, our extended family, and, yea, the body of Christ. That's why understanding that these are verbs is so helpful as you begin to dissect them and look at them. Paul is saying a lot here. Lastly, love is better than spiritual gifts, verses 8 to 13. Since that's the theme of these three chapters, it would make sense why Paul then goes into this. Because usually at a wedding, you, you only do verses 4 to 7. I mean, that's pretty much it, which is a good section. But again, the context is spiritual gifts and the abuse of them. And so the last section here, Paul wants to remind us love is actually more important than spiritual gifts. Verses 8 and following, love never fails but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, he's mentioning some of the spiritual gifts, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the complete comes, or when the, when the perfect comes, what is in part, or what is impartial, will disappear. When I was like a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put, a, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Mirrors back then weren't nearly as nice as mirrors today. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. I'm going to drill down in verse 10 for a moment. This has been the source of lots of conversation theologically over the years. When, but when completeness or when the perfect comes, that which is in part will disappear. Question is, what does Paul say? What does he mean by when the perfect comes or the completeness? The NIV says completeness, but 
what, what does he mean when the perfect comes, that which is in part will disappear? Well, virtually everyone agrees, first of all, that the part, the partial, is our spiritual gifts. That's what he's talking about here. So there's, in other words, there's going to be a point when spiritual gifts will come to an end, where there will be no need for them anymore. And, and when is that? Well, it's when something called the perfect comes. And usually it boils down to one of two options. What is the perfect? What is this perfect that's coming where spiritual gifts are no longer needed? Some view this as the completion of the New Testament canon in the end of the first century. Some view it, and the majority view it, as the second coming of Christ. I think there's a lot of argument for the latter view. In fact, support for that would come from verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror, then we'll see face to face. So he's looking to the second coming of Christ right there, verse 12. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully. Clearly he's talking about the eschaton, the last things, which means... Or as I can tell, Paul expected all the spiritual gifts to continue in some form or another until Christ returns. He is not spending a lot of time here on certain gifts of, you know, are, are still operating and some are not. His focus is on the misuse and abuse of them and how these people were misusing and abusing each other, being bitter, keeping track of wrongs, not honoring others, being cruel, being unkind, and not being patient with each other. Which leads to a summons, which I want to put in the form of two questions this morning. Summons number one. My first summons is always the same thing, phrased a little differently. But the summons is this. Have you owned your sinfulness and trusted in Jesus as Savior for salvation? Because this whole chapter, yea, this whole letter is written under the assumption that he is writing to people who have owned their sin and have trusted in Christ for salvation. When he says, I'm writing to each of you, or, or the gifts are given to each of you, he's talking about those who are truly born again. See, we're living in a day, let me put this a little bit of a different way, where we're being told over and over, shoved in our face now, that we choose our own identity. This is a new conversation in world history. That it's fluid and that it's flexible. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says our identity is fixed at birth and has two basic anchors. One, we're created in the image of God. That's said of no other creature on earth. Not even angels. Human beings are created and they're precious in the image of God. And secondly, because of Genesis 3, we're rebels against God. So we're image bearers of God. And we're rebels against God. And scriptures are replete with verses. For example, Psalm 106.6. We have sinned even as our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. Or Isaiah 59.2. Your sins have cut you off from God. And this leads to what Jesus said in John 3 about the need then to go through spiritual rebirth. In John 3, Jesus said you cannot... See the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And the Bible says the only way to be reborn spiritually is you have to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings Paul then to say in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone does that, if anyone repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, something happens inside them. 
something we philosophers would say ontologically, something truly takes place in their nature and they're changed. And Paul says they become a new creation. King James said a new creature. Most English translations, they said they become a brand new creation, meaning that once we're saved, the Holy Spirit invades us and begins to change that person from the inside out. We don't just swap one moral code for another. Something actually changes inside us at the moment of conversion. And we get the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit moves in. And what happens? New desires start cropping up. New attitudes start emerging. New, new abilities start to emerge, and we take on a brand new identity. We are united with Christ, and nothing looks the same ever again. We're not perfect, but there is a change. People cannot but notice it. Light comes into our eyes. A softening occurs over the years. That person knows Christ. Have you owned Christ, and are you born again? That's the assumption of what Paul's writing to here. Second question this morning and last one. Talking now only to those who are genuinely saved. If you're not saved, you're under the wrath of God, and I would highly encourage you to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ while there is still time. Jesus was very clear about that. There's windows of opportunity that open and close. Never take it for granted that they will open again. But if you are saved and you know Jesus, young people, kids, if you're saved and you know Jesus, adults, if you're sitting there saying, yes, I know Christ, then here's the next question. Are you obeying Jesus? Here we bump into the difference between what I would call the biblical gospel and the American gospel. You say, well, what's the American gospel? Well, here, I'll tell you what the American gospel is. American gospel says, God wants you to be happy and fulfilled and issues no demands on your life. It's all over Christian television. It's in popular literature. It's a gospel with no sin, no need for a savior, no need for surrender. And it's rampant, not just in liberal churches, but in Bible teaching churches. Years ago, I read a book by Neil Postman. Some of you may know the name. It's a classic. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he describes the American gospel in his book. Now, what's interesting about the book is that Neil Postman was a secular Jew. In fact, he was described as a humanistic Jew. He didn't really believe in God. But he was a very astute observer of culture, and especially of Judaism and Christianity in American culture. And at the end, towards the end of the book, he described the American gospel in a way that I thought was unusually poignant. He said this, What is preached on television is nothing like the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) That's an understatement. Religious programs are filled with good cheer. They celebrate affluence. Their preachers become celebrities. Though their messages are trivial, they have high ratings. I believe that I am not mistaken in saying that true Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another religion altogether. That's the American gospel, described by a secular humanistic Jew who at least had the integrity to say, look at, when you look at the New Testament and you look at what the American gospel is, they're two different religions. And so the question to you and I this morning, do you know Christ? And if you do, 
Are you sure you're practicing the biblical gospel? The biblical gospel calls me to die to self, to be born again, to surrender to the Lord Jesus, and to follow him in obedience. Jesus, again, John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And one of his clearest commandments is to love one another as he loved us, to forgive from the heart. Jesus says in John 13, a new command I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you. And so going back to the memorial yesterday for Rose Sutherland and the old hymn we sang, they will know we're Christians by our love. That is what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 13. That is the challenge for us as a church. My pastoral encouragement in this church is this is probably one of the most loving and healthy churches Becky and I have ever been in. It doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we're not all sinners. We are because one of the biggest ones standing right here. But there is a love displayed in this congregation that we have not seen at this level in the other couple of churches we've served in. They were good churches, but we are so grateful for the amount of love and concern we see in this congregation. May it continue. May it spread. And may we yield to the Lord Jesus on this very, very important topic. Father, we thank you for Paul. Wow, this guy could be blunt. (laughs) And he could get angry. And he could write very sharp words with sarcasm. But he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And he loved the Word of God. And he loved people. And he wanted us to love people. Thank you for this chapter, Father, and how unique it is. Help us to understand Scripture in context. And I do pray for those today here, Father, who maybe didn't even come in thinking about their own bitterness. That if they are bitter, if they've been keeping grievances and grudges for the years, that you might convict them for their own good, for the sake of their family, their marriage, their friendships, and for the church. And we pray this, hopefully and expectantly, in Jesus' good name. Amen.